he will edit it. He will, uh, you know, maybe he'll make this the cold open. And okay. then he'll play music. Oh. Oh. I'll, I'll introduce <laughs> you. Oh, nice. Comrades and friends, hello. Uh, we are in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. And uh, today we have, uh, you know, a local person here, Highlands. Uh, you know, she does a lot of stuff, like, under the radar. We don't talk about it a lot, you know. But uh, I'm very happy to uh, to introduce our guest today. Uh, Adriana Brome uh, is a professor of sociology at the Delaware County Community College, uh, she is also on the Red Clay School Board in what's District A. Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah, because all the districts are just, they have to confuse you even further and just make them like, just District I. Um, but uh, I've always said, um, you know, I, don't, I famously uh, do not have any children. And so I'm, I'm usually fairly ignorant of like a lot of school education issues just in general. Um, you know, we've worked with some people to try to get me up to speed, but I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a slow learner on this stuff, but, um, Adriana, thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me and for having me. I'm very excited about it. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I mentioned, so just let, let's level set because I always, when I mention this kind of stuff, like sort of the odd organization of the way that school districts are in the state. I always exaggerate, like, for effect, and people are like, no, no, there's not 90, there's 27 or whatever. So how many are how many school districts are there? Do we know? It's like 20? No, I think there's 18 or 19. 18 or 19, yeah, okay. Yeah, in the state. And, and that is fairly odd. It's an odd setup just in general in the country the way states do it. Um, just this, the, the, the smallness of them and, I guess, how they're, how they're organized and, and, and a school board basically like each town. Um, but I actually don't mind that. Like, I'm sort of like a, you know, the more the power is it, like at the grassroots of the people who live there, I'm actually fine with it. Like, make more of them. That's fine. Make them community-based. like And then maybe go up and have some sort of uh, system to administer them. But, like, I don't really mind it that much. Um, but I, I know that it creates administrative problems under our current structure. And I saw a couple of weeks ago that Governor Carney was laying out like some loose framework regarding the reorganization of the city of Wilmington. Because right now it's sort of like educational gerrymandering where, you know, a, a bunch of different suburban districts kind of cut into the city. Uh, and it's just a weird, it's just very strange. So I guess in a, it, he wanted to um, somehow address that, but it's just like this vague framework um, can you tell me a little bit about it and like sort of what he's proposing and and what um, and what that would solve? I know there's not a lot of detail, but I'm interested in just like the school of thought. <laughs> well, I will try and help you out to the best that I can. Thank you. So Carney has proposed the Wilmington Learning Collaborative in a proposal. I saw the first edition of it, and then I saw the second edition of it or um, draft of it, and I think there's another one. That is being worked on at the moment. I have not seen that one yet. But I think what Governor Carney has tried to do is he's taken a lot of work that a lot of people in Wilmington have done over the years, right? Over the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and try and 
put it all together in a proposal that would sort of, um, I wouldn't say it would restructure the districts, but it would hopefully allow the community of Wilmington to have more input and more say into what is going on in the schools in Wilmington. Um, so when I was reading through his proposal, initially, it, I, I um, work with County Councilman J.P. Street Sr. a lot, and I've looked at a number of documents he's written over the years, and he had a proposal, um, Mr. St County Councilman Street, in 2009, and it was called the Street 16. And he laid out, really, this plan for things we could do in Wilmington to make education more equitable. And a lot of what Governor Carney has in his plan um, was basically street the street 16 plan right and so I looked at that and then I was you know I've worked in in education and in on different committees over the years and I started to go through all of the proposals um, it took me a few days but I'm going to name some of them because there have been nine or ten proposals that have been you know they they exist in written reports with a ton of detail and information and research in them all about what to do with high poverty, high need schools. Um, so I'll read you some of them. So we have the Wilmington Neighborhood Committee, Children Matter Most Report. Um, and the subtitle of that is Investing in Wilmington's Children and Delaware's Future. That was January 2001. We have the report to the city of Wilmington on House Bill 300 of the Neighborhood Schools Act. That was March 2001. The Wilmington Hope Commission, 2006. And I believe Car uh, Governor Carney was on that. The Wilmington Education Task Force, 2008. The Mayor's Youth Education and Citizenship Strategic Planning Team, 2013. The ACLU Delaware Coalition for Fairness and Equity in Schools Vision and Priority Report, that was 2014. The Wilmington Education Advisory Committee, which was WEAC, that was formed in um, September of 2014, and the final report was issued in 2015. I was on that. Then there, we had the Wilmington Education Improvement Commission, which was WEAC, which came right after WEAC, and that was formed in 2015 by Governor Markell when he signed SB 122 and HB 148. And then we have the Reading Consortium now. So we have a litany of information and you know ideas and research about what people are saying we need to do and i think governor carney's plan tries to encompass some of that and on one hand that makes me happy and joyful because hey the people in our community who live in wilmington who work in wilmington who raise kids in wilmington they've put all this work and effort into it right and then the other part of me is like there there are things missing from this plan that are really really important that exist in every single one of these other plans and to me that's that's the problematic part of the plan um so i can tell you some of the great things that i think are in the plan do you want me to do that yes do that well the first thing i i, I want to say is that i my i'm i'm glad that some of these things are coming back up because, you know, historically in Delaware, you know, everything's like a consortium and a task force and a red panel committee and that and nothing really uh, manifests from that. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that a, a lot of this is sort of a compilation of all of this work that is done. But, yeah, I'm interested in some of the details and how it would address sort of this odd, I call it like a gerrymandered system within how, how each one of these from all of these different reports would address some of those issues too. So they're going to propose X because it's going to address Y, say. So, so, so I'll 
well, I don't really know where to start, but there's so many <laughs> things to say here. Okay, so I'm going to start by saying some of the wonderful things that are in this plan that are really exciting. So one is, and it's going to get to your point, um, he's proposing a community-based governing board. So there would be the way Newcastle County, um, the Newcastle County School District is set up is we have our four school districts. We have Brandywine, Red Clay, Colonial, and Christina. And then on each of those boards, you have elected members, and they're supposed to live in certain geographic er areas so that the district can be represented. I'm only going to talk about Red Clay here because that's the board I'm on. Right. Um, so in Red Clay, we have seven members of our board, right? District A, District B, et cetera, et cetera. And you're supposed to live in an area that corresponds with your district. For, for Red Clay, we only have two seats that are city seats. So five of the seats are suburban seats. The other thing about the way the board is configured is that although you represent, so I represent nominating District A, however, everyone in the entire district can vote in my election. So what often happens is that um, the voters in the suburbs are able to vote in their candidate of choice even for the city seats because the city residents are not the only ones voting it for that city yeah, seat. You, so you represent a geographical area, but everybody in the district can vote for each one. Correct. Correct. So because we have so many more people living out in the suburbs in Red Clay, in part because when Newcastle County was forced to integrate, the city was divided up into the, the quadrants that we have now, right? So we have a circle of the city that's divided up into four parts. We don't have the whole city, so our sections are smaller. So, you know, there's smaller geographic areas and you have fewer, you have higher density, but fewer people. So that's one way in which the city is disenfranchised because um, we had an election for District B, I think about two years ago, and we had three people run. Two of them lived in the city of Wilmington. Um, one owns a house in Wilmington, but doesn't actually live in Wilmington. The two women running from the city of Wilmington had very high voter totals for, from city residents, like they won the city locations. However, the person who lives in the suburbs won the vote by winning the suburban votes, not yeah. the city votes. That's a, I mean, I, I, the way I look at it when I, when I look at a map, you know, it looks the way we would think of a, of a, of a state or, uh, representative district or another representative district in another state that's gerrymandered. That basically says, you know, we're going to take pieces of this and kind of throw them together, but really you're always going to be overruled by people over here. And so the math is going to work out like it's going to disenfranchise you. You know, that's 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 what it is. And I, and I think I, I, I knew the part about voting, you know, so I'm in red clay and I can but I can vote for any red clay uh, geographical location. Like I didn't know that part, but it didn't. It didn't occur to me till I started putting all this together exactly what the what the ramifications of that are not only for Red Clay but for the other suburban districts that cut into and gerrymandered a city. So yeah, so what happens is on our school board you need four votes to pass anything. All right, so you have two city seats and you have five seats where people live in the suburbs. So often, you know, you're if you're voting on an issue that's directly associated with the city, 
people who live in the city and parents who are advocates in the city and students who advocate on their own behalf and city residents, their voices sometimes get lost in that process because other people who don't live here, they don't live their daily lives here, they're not in interaction with people from the city all the time, they may have a different experience or a different perspective because they don't live here, right? And so that's that's one of the very problematic things that, that occurs when you don't have adequate or, or representation. And, and so what, um, from, from the proposal, uh, now would, uh, the, the community-based governing board would sort of smooth that out or, or pull that, some of that uh, the power back to the geographical locations? Well, I, I think, because I can't speak for the governor, but what I think the proposal is suggesting from what I've read of it and, and talked to him about it is that we would have a city governing board that would consist of, excuse me, the, the city board members from each district. So the Christina board members from the city, the Brandywine board members who represent city seats, the Red Clay, right? Um, all those board members that represent the city would be on that board. And then there would be other people. I think the superintendents would be on there. Maybe the mayor would be allowed to, um, you know. City caucus. Like, yes. Yeah, okay. Which is wonderful and terrific. However, I don't know how much power that city caucus, I love the way you put it, would have when they go back to their board seat where they're just one of two people or one of, you know, or whatever it is. Um, I don't know how that translates directly into their into power on the on the board of the district, which is ultimately where the power is retained. Right. That's where a lot of the big decisions are going to be made. And I say that because I can't envision school boards saying we're going to allow this, the decisions that affect city schools and city residents to be made primarily or solely or only by members of the board that live in the city. I think that would be a big, you know, change of the power structure and power dynamic. And I, I don't see that happening. Yeah, Because the only thing that and we've talked about it before, and I don't know whether it's covered in any of these proposals, is just a reorganization. And saying, you know, if if this is a city, we can we can we can we don't have to gerrymander it. We can look at it as as a city and, and, and take it back. But the infrastructure, I don't think, is there to do that now, because uh, I mean, we have uh, Howard is is that a, is that part of the Votech? Yes. So we have Howard as part of the Votech. What used to be Wilmington High School is now Cab and Charter, and you know that that I guess that's going to be sort of like public-private partnership stuff. Um, so there's, there's, we, there's not even a high school now. So like my, so any kind of reorganization, I guess, is sort of off the table unless it's some kind of hybrid. So I think with the reorganization, I think the Reading Consortium is talking about or thinking about, you know, long-term, what might a reorganization look like? And I think there are a bunch of different plans out there, and that's sort of not my biggest area of knowledge but you know there's talk about a new castle county district like right because the truth of the matter is we have districts across the country that have as many people in their district if not more than we have in all of the state of delaware combined right so you could have a new castle county district which wouldn't even be probably one of the largest districts in the country it wouldn't be um you could have a two river district you could have you could look at it and parse it up in different ways 
and I believe the Reading Consortium is doing some of that work. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've talked to Tizzy sort of on the side a few times, and I just because it's a consortium, I'm, I, I kind of shut down every time she starts telling. Like I, I hear task force or consortium, and I start like my my cognitive just start to slow down and slow down and slow down. But um, I, I just I I I am always um, I guess to to piggyback off of that, I'm just always very skeptical of another sort of administrative arm that doesn't have any sort of real political power. Like, it's funny, we're talking about all of these groups that have done work on this in the last, I went back to 2001, so the last 20 years or more. Uh, and then part of the solution is just like, okay, well, we're going to create another board that you guys are going to go sit in and advise the superintendents and the principals of the schools or whatever. Um, but like, okay, like it's not, there has to be a, a concrete, change in the way that we even look at it um is there anything in there i mean what else what other like um big highlights because you said there's there's a there's a top line you know there's a group of top line stuff that's pretty good so i like love the community-based governing board um he's proposed community councils where parents and people who are you know activists and advocates in the neighborhood can give input onto educational decisions i think that's great having a more structured way that people can voice their thoughts, I think is absolutely phenomenal. Full day pre-K, 100% behind that. Absolutely love that. I've been talking about that for years now. Yeah, I mean, that's been in some, that's been in a bunch of different, like, just sort of services. And I think that I'm behind that. Yes, 100%. 100%. We, should, we should be doing that as quickly as possible. Absolutely. However, we can't just say we're going to have full day pre-K, and that's a wonderful thing. We have to provide transportation. We have to fund transportation. Well, we're right? going to talk about that at the end. We're <laughs> talking about some of the current uh, issues, but yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then we have to make it free. We have to make it affordable, right? So it's accessible yes, to free. all people. Yeah, affordable in this case. When we talk about education, when you talk about uh, f uh, food at school, the education, the transportation, and we talk about public education, that means it's free. It yes. We all pay for it, and it yes. should all be good everywhere for every kid, no matter where they live. And it should just, all be quality yes. education. Uh, yeah, yes. Should, yeah, so just so everybody knows, like, where, and that's what I said, that, that's where I'm coming from. I, and I don't know if everybody believes that, actually. I, I'm not sure. Well, I think, so I met with the mayor this summer, with Mayor Perzicki and some people from the uh, ACL. Oh my gosh, ACLU. And one of the things we talked about was uh, universal pre-K and it being free and it being fully funded with transportation. And I think one, do, one of the wonderful things about that is that you, uh, universal pre-K has, I would say, almost more impacts later on in a student's life than it even does in the beginning. We know it does all this wonderful stuff in the beginning. But really, in terms of civic engagement, in terms of doing well in school, in uh, in regards to reducing crime, right? How many times a, a child gets in trouble in school? All of that is reduced, right? When you get into a provision of universal pre-K, and right now, what happens is that it's just so expensive that many people can't afford it, right? So their kids can't go, and then we we begin with if, in these unequal spaces. From very very early age. Yeah, everything starts in the beginning. Right. What, the, the, you're actually further back. The, the the earlier you get in, the better, exponentially better. Right. Because you're that you, you know that's the time where you need to get ahead of right. everything. 
and uh, yeah, for sure. Right. For sure. That, that there's no there's there's sh- hopefully, I mean, I think people are coming around to that idea, but I've heard that for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I know I, that. and that's another thing. I think a lot of people like I don't know the exact statistic, but I think a lot of people are in favor of universal pre K, and especially now because most people are working, right? Well, at least I'd say pre pandemic, you have both. Both people right. or all the people or the person in the household, people are working. They're not there. So we're either paying for child care or we're going to fund it through, you know, the taxes that we are, we're already paying. And I just think it's such a benefit for society. Yeah, I mean, it's better for the, the – the, it's, it's certainly better for the children. There's no, I mean, that's what every study everywhere has said. And intuitively, you would know that. You would be like, yeah, as soon as you can get somebody into sort of some sort of formal sort of educational process uh, where they're – um, interacting with a teacher that's not their parents, they're getting on a bus maybe, um, they're interacting with kids they don't know, and instruct like that's again if you don't if so many people don't so many kids don't have that that um, that's one of those structural things we were talking about earlier like until we start thinking about that kind of stuff it really doesn't matter um, you know it, it doesn't matter where you draw lines mm-hmm. you, you kind of have to actually execute it. Yes, you have to execute. And I think with the pre-K, another thing that's really important to talk about is uh, paying our educators, our pre-K educators, very decently, right, and paying them great salaries and providing wonderful benefits for them because we know that that pre-K or daycare or nursery schools, often the people who work in those occupations, they're not paid well. And so that's another component of it. Yeah, and that's another thing I want to talk about when we sort of switch over to some of the – um, union stuff and 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 some of that uh, some some of the other power that I think can come back and if it comes back to the educators like at the grassroots some of the stuff will change, you know I think um, people have a certain idea about teachers uh, not all people and not all teachers but I think it's wrong and uh, I, I I don't say it a lot because I don't talk about educational issues a lot and because I don't have kids but yeah I want to talk about that too because that. That's something that goes against this whole idea of like getting things back to the grassroots, letting the people who are doing it make the decisions, and treating them like professional people. Right. You know? Right. So, but I'll let you. I'll let you pick okay. a few more out. And go, okay. And go on so we can talk about a couple more issues. So another thing I really liked um, that I had talked to uh, the governor's people a lot about was the the quality of food that our students are receiving in schools. Right. And the high sugar content and the high fat content and the fact that there's sometimes just sugar, 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 right? And so we really need to reimagine the types of food that our children are eating because we know that's going to have an impact on behavior, right? And hyperness and people feeling a little less control in their little bodies if they're all sugared up. So one of the uh, things in here is a farm to table partnership, which I thought was just wonderful. I like that. Yeah, I Um, like that a lot mm -hmm. too. I I actually worked... um, summers and like breaks and stuff at the colonial school district doing different kinds of like maintenance and, and stuff like that and it was around the time where they were they were doing a lot of administrative stuff around food service so it was like you bring all the frozen stuff to one hub you send it all out and there's no there's no prep it's just garbage food and they're doing it because it's you know 15 percent cheaper or whatever or 20 percent cheaper yeah but what are you really doing what's the what's the what's the end result of that you're just giving garbage to you know all the kids there, and it's not, uh, you know, it's it's not it's it's not conducive to health, but it's also not conducive to like just as you said, like learning. 
Well, yeah. And I mean, there's actual research on this, right? So I teach. So I always want to come back to the research. And the re there have been studies where they've looked at schools that children are sent to for alternative placement. That means everyone in there has gotten in enough trouble that they're not in their traditional public school anymore. They're in alternative placement. And they've had actual um, cases where they've said, OK, we're going to bring in chefs and we're going to bring in whole wholesome, healthy food. We're going to bring in fruits and vegetables. We're going to basically eliminate the sugar. And the behavioral changes, they're not changing by like 2% or 8% or 10%. They're changing by like 60, 70%, like be just pure behavior yeah. based on what the kids are eating, right? And they're getting a full breakfast. They're getting a full lunch. They're getting snacks. They're getting food to take home with them in the evening, right? In case they don't have food at home. And I mean, I think... I think the thing about education is that at this point, we really have, um, we know what works. We, we know what makes strong, healthy schools, and we know what makes strong, healthy communities. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel or spend a whole bunch of time figuring out what we need to do. We know what we need to do, but like you said earlier, we need to execute. We need to take those things we know and put them into action. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm actually so glad at the beginning that you went through all of the different sort of uh, work that went into and all the different reports that sort of are hopefully coming to some kind of conclusion. Um, cause people should look at that. I mean, we need we need to act now. Yes. Now's the time. Yeah. Um, to execute on some yes. of the stuff because um, you know, well, one of the reasons is we're, uh, there seems to be money uh, now. Everybody's everybody's an MMT or you can get a little you can get a little that that federal dough. Which again, I think is perfectly legitimate. That's what the, the federal government should be doing, in my opinion. And so, yeah, I'm glad this this information's out there, so we know where to direct this stuff, for sure. Let uh, give us one okay, more, and well, then we'll we'll go into a uh, we'll we'll go into a, another segment. So another great thing is uh, uh, an emphasis on small class sizes, which we've been fighting for for a long time across the state, across the country. Right, having really small class sizes is just such a more wonderful way to teach and educate our young people, right? And it gives a lot more one-on-one -on -one time. You get a lot more um, time to sort of assess the students, not in terms of a paper assessment, but just working with them, realizing what their needs are and recognizing what the, what they need and how you can help them. And then also more having more educators and more social workers in the classroom, um, well, in the schools. Right. And I, I, so I think those are all wonderful things and they're not they're not unique things because everything except, I think, the farm-to-table partnership, they're all in these earlier reports. Um, so taking that work and, and saying, hey, okay, here we are again saying this is the stuff that we need. But my question is, right, how many times do we have to generate reports to basically say the same thing over and over again? And what the reports do is they update it. So, okay, we had this report in 2015 that said X, Y, and Z. Now we're going to do another report and publish it in 2019, and it's going to have all that previous information and then the information from the last four years that hasn't been captured that says the same exact thing that all the information for the last 15 years said, right? So Yeah, and I, I'm I'm hoping that as we – as we start to make some electoral political changes, we can we can we can start uh, taking action on these things from from a legal basis and 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 from a I, I'm guessing that uh, this is some some executive action could be done to do this as well. Um, I know, you know, the governor and an action sometimes don't go together, uh, but I I will uh, I'll take it easy on you about that. <laughs> 
Well, I think it's an exciting time. You know, I think there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of optimism. And um, Mouse, the president of the NAACP, he was actually at our board meeting when the governor came, which was um, the, our November 17th board meeting. And he says that, he said at the meeting, and I wrote it down, he said, our kids need hope. And that's really where we are. They're, our kids need hope. And he said it. And not only the kids, but the parents, the community needs hope, That's, right? that's what I, it, it's, it's so interesting that you said that. And again, I don't say this a lot. I've, I've said it a few times, I guess, because I'm not really an advocate in the space and, and, and for all those reasons. But yeah, I mean, I just envision this idea, you know, kids are going to understand if their school's nicer if their class is smaller, if their teacher seems to care or somebody comes in and asks them how their day was or they get food to take home uh, or, like, the, they, get a, the, they get new uh, basketball goals in the gym or whatever. Like, if, if we can do this stuff, there's going to be an intangible benefit that you're just going to see with, with children just in general because they're going to be treated, uh, you know, in a way that they're not being just stockpiled in a, in a, in a classroom of 30 given junk food, um, you know, and just sort of like scraping by. Like that's that's no way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, now's the time. Now is the time. Seize I, the moment. This yes. is the seize, seize <laughs> the moment. Okay, this is the time uh, when uh, Carl will play maybe some interstitial music oh. and we'll break into our next, <laughs> our next segment. <laughs> So this is what you haven't uh, read today. So I'll read a little bit. I'll, okay. I read it this morning. It's, just, it's almost like I, I asked for this to come out since you were coming <laughs> over to talk about this. But in any case. So this is from uh, Delaware Online. The News Journal went up today, uh, this morning. Uh, Shannon Marvel McNaught. Delaware teachers feel they are drowning, in quotes. Staff shortages clash with quality education. Teachers education group voice concerns about real impact on your students. Uh, Delaware schools are being pushed on their op to their operational limits even as COVID-19 rates send, uh, start to trend downward across the state. The Delaware State Education Association is urging school districts to make changes, including returning to virtual learning if necessary. Association President Stephanie Ingram asked each district to create a clear and publicly available plan for days when schools simply don't have enough people working to operate effectively. Um, she makes a quote there. Um, According to Ingram, paraprofessionals and other staff like counselors and librarians are being used in the classroom with absent teachers and substitutes that aren't available. Sometimes multiple classes are grouped in cafeterias or auditoriums with a single staff member due to lack of staff, Ingram said. The shortages extend to bus drivers who are often doubling up on routes, causing students to arrive late. And in some cases, bus drivers are transporting special needs students without aids, Ingram said. Limited custodial staff is mentioned. Um, I guess a couple districts have sort of started doing this. Laurel um, has a plan. I, you know, it doesn't really have a lot of detail. Uh, they're going to make every effort to, you know, figure out what they're doing, I guess. Um, let's see. There was something from the... DSA, from the uh, DSEA. Oh, so then it gets down to like, um, like from the teachers, from the actual teachers. Delaware Online, the News Journal, interviewed or considered comments from eight educators from across the state for this report. 
Many more were contacted but declined to comment due to fear of losing their jobs, while others commented under the conditions they remain anonymous. One of the top concerns among them was special education students. There's a huge concern they're not getting the services they need because their teachers are being pulled for other things, said one capital school district teacher. Christina Education Association President Darren Tyson agreed they're not getting that one-on-one -on -one attention they need for their education. A lot of times that has to go out the door if the teacher has to be used in a different capacity. A lot, in a lot of cases, uh, the IEP, uh, individual, uh, individualized education programs, aren't being followed. They're just not able to do it. So the last bit of it here is from uh, Steve Rulon, I guess the guy from the Brandywine Education Association. You can probably know Steve. Um, he's the one that used that said staff are drowning. Uh, as the year progresses and more responsibilities are being put off on staff members, show on staff members' shoulders is becoming uh, increasingly difficult for educators to keep their heads above water. Uh, I'm not sure what's oh so this is this is the capital school district teacher that was quoted earlier uh, about dealing with parents. I'm not sure what's causing the nastiness within the past few weeks. Everybody seems to be much more on edge. We dealt with one today where a parent got very nasty with a teacher, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of backup from administration. Teacher morale is really, really low because of that. Finally, teachers are saying no, and everyone believes they're. Oh, finally, teachers are saying no, and everyone believes they are selfish. You can help perpetuate that, she said to the Christina School Board. Uh, this was uh, another comment they got from somebody, Christina. Teachers are not selfish. They are finding that in order to survive, they need to step back, and even then, they are barely surviving. So that was out today. Um, the first question I have from that is, I don't know if you read uh, last week, we ran a essay in the call from a woman who was now, at the, now teaches in Chicago, Dana Case. And one of the themes of that was that at least Chicago has a teachers' union that has some, has some muscle. So they can fight back against that stuff, right? So if they're getting, you know, if, if, if parents or, or, or administration are not getting it, they have a mechanism by organization that they can fight back. It doesn't really exist here. I mean, you see um, some of the union, some of the teachers' associations, whatever you want to say, commenting on this and asking for things, but there's no, uh, there's no ramifications. You know. That's my first, always my first thing is, is there any way to strengthen the teachers union and fight back against some of this stuff? Because I, I, I mean, I, I don't even want to really, you know, teachers are not selfish. Like everybody says that as a thing, like uh, they get summers off. Like I'm not even going to like, uh, deal with those kind of that's sort of nonsense so my idea is just how one of the ways to fight back against that is to have a stronger organized teachers union um but I, I, that's 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 really not in the cards is it well i mean i'm i'm not a teacher in delaware so i that's just something i'm not yeah i mean I, I didn't know whether you had a feeling from being on the school board and having colleagues on the school board who are teachers um, and working on those school board issues with educators that are either in that group or not and work within the school, whether they would be, uh, I think they should all be unionized, but whatever. Um, like, do you get a sense that 
that that would that kind of organization would help? Well, I mean, first of all, I want to say we have 26 schools in Red Clay. I've been in our, I've been in all the schools, and our teachers are working their butts off. Our teachers are working countless hours every day. Our teachers are bringing in supplies that they have to pay for them by themselves. Our teachers are supplying their own masks. They're often buying masks for their students and bringing them in. Our teachers are bringing food for students, right? Lots and lots and lots of our teachers have um, like food pantries in their rooms. They have toiletry pantries in their rooms where they're buying deodorant and soap and clothes and all of these things our students can need. So I would always say that teachers are exceptionally um the ones who are regularly going overboard, right? And they're going overboard hard and fast. And sort of the thing about uh, they're having their summers off, the majority of teachers I know work in the summer. I know. No, I, I mean, work, I said that as, know, a, as a common no, 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 cliche, no, 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 you know, know what I mean? But they either work doing work for the district or they do work, you know, a lot of our teachers waitress, they're waiters. We were in Staples buying supplies for my kids and my son and daughter started talking to the woman at the ca cashier count counter and I said to them when we got in the car, how'd you know her? And they said, that's our lunch lady. Yeah. And she's, here she is working at Staples, right? So they're, they're working and they're putting in a lot of energy and effort. And I think to your question about organizing, I think there's just a tremendous amount of stress everywhere, yeah. right? We Americans are stressed and I don't have my stats with me. But when I was talking about going back to school at one of our previous board meetings, um, I think the American Journal of Medicine has issued a report that says Americans are the most stressed out than they've been in 50 years and the most unhappy that they've been in 50 years. And these numbers are predicted to increase and not decrease, right? So as a society, we're going hard and fast and we're feeling alienated. And I think that's the type of language we need to use, right? So if we're looking at some of these old theoretical perspectives, this idea of alienation, we're alienated from our lives because we're busy. We're alienated in terms of the work we do, right? We're alienated in the fact that there's not enough resources to go around. And I think the teaching shortages and the education educator shortages and the bus driver shortages, they're very real, right? And they're very hard. And people are trying to find a way forward, trying to find a path forward. And I think people are coming together more as a collective and speaking in a uni unified voice, right? But in this country, we, we focus more on this idea of individualism. So we're not really taught as like a basic um, tenant that we should collaborate and work with groups and through organizations to convey a message that we feel strongly about. It's more that the individual operates on his or her behalf. And I think one of the things we are seeing from the pandemic on a number of fronts is this activity and action-based organizing that's taking place. And I, I know that when I'm in the classroom and I ask students, you know, have you ever organized? Have you ever joined with a group of people together to, you know, um, you know, ask for something or to say, hey, can we do something different? None of them. They haven't. And that's because we, we were not teaching that, right? We haven't been taught that. We, we don't teach our students that. But as adults, we haven't been taught that either. No, and that's, I, I mean, you're preaching to the choir with me. I mean, that's my whole thing. We were taught from an early age in school and in every interaction and in history and in, and in everywhere that uh, it's all about the individual. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh, if you fail, it's all your fault. Um, there's no, you know, 
maybe there are some mitigating circumstances, but ultimately it's because you're a failure. You're 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 not you're not you don't you know you're not good, and that's not none of that's correct. Um, you know, and I think that what you said about how parents treat teachers, it's like like that person's my child's teacher. No, that person's the teacher of the class that your child's in, actually, and they're 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 going through the curriculum at the school and they're also doing a lot of other things, but like people don't look at it like that. They're, they're, everything's like a service. Like everybody's a consumer of a thing. They're an individual consumer of something. And that idea, uh, number one, it's wrong. Uh, it's unhealthy. And it certainly doesn't work for things like educating and taking care of kids. Right. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm I fully I think that a lot of the tension uh, comes from that. Actually. Well, and I think the parents are stressed out. Yeah. So I think that you know if um, if we look at some of the quotes that you read, and my newspaper is still rolled up in my driveway, I still haven't gotten it ah, yet. Nice. <laughs> but um, you know, if 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 parents feel stressed out, and so one of the quotes was that um, I think you said Darren Tyson was saying that. Students who have IEPs may not always be getting their required services because those teachers have to be pulled out and maybe they have to do a, a lunchroom duty or they have to be a push-in for a specials class, right? So, you know, we have all of these stressors and parents are stressed out and educators are stressed out, administrators are stressed out, and that all coalesces in the context of, of the classroom, right? And I think that you know, I'm not ever in the in the position where I want to say I'm blaming teachers or I'm blaming parents. I think we have to look at ways to make the system and the structure more efficient and more progressive. And that's really where the root of our work is, right? So today in my class, I was teaching about the sociological imagination, right? Which is C. Wright Mills's idea that we all have these individual ideas and um, uh, concerns and problems. And we just think, like you said, they're rooted in us by ourselves. But really what sociology is good for is saying, let's take a step back and let's look at how all of our social institutions impact our personal experiences and the hard hardships we experience. So if we're looking at education as an element of society that could be improved, right? That could be made more more wholesome and more sound and more equitable. What are the things we can do bringing in the the parents and the teachers and the educators and the community activists? How what can we do working together to make that system stronger because then that will reduce stress for everyone. But I don't we're not at that end place yet. We're in in the midst of it where it is hard and uncomfortable and that work needs to be done and i think that we're trying to figure that out as a people and i think that's one i'm not going to say it's nice that we're stressed because i hate stress and i'm stressed but it's exciting i think to be in this space where people are saying hey how can we work together there yeah there's some parents who are upset but there are a heck of a lot of parents who are saying how can we help you know what can we do we have this new program that we're seeing across the country it's called dads on duties on duty where fathers who work full-time jobs and part-time jobs are just volunteering to come into schools because they know that fights are increasing that students are getting into some more trouble and they're saying we live in the communities where dads our kids are in these schools and they've started organizations and in different places across the country you have these groups of guys 
right? Working class men, middle class men, black men, white men, right? All different demographics saying, we're going to do something a little bit different in schools. We're going to make sure that our kids are okay and that they're not getting into trouble and try and figure out how to decrease, you know, some of the tension that's existing. So I think that's something exciting coming out of here. Like, hey, wow. Yeah, I hope, I mean, you said it earlier too in talking to, say, groups of students. Like, have you ever thought about, you know, doing something together or trying to organize a group to go to the school board meeting or to the principal and talk about X thing. Yeah. I mean, people don't, they don't, that's not their, they don't, they don't think in that way. You know, I, I don't know the term you used, but that imagination isn't, uh, you know, we call it, uh, you know, in like wonky, like Marxist terms, we call it capitalist realism. Like you can't think of there's a different way to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Like this is what, you think the way you were taught is the way that it is, right. but that's not necessarily the case. Right. So you got to kind of, you know, you, what what's real is what you make, what you make it together. Right. And who's at the table makes what is real. Who's at the table makes what is real, brings it out into the open. And who's not at the table also makes thing makes things unreal and it's not bought out into the open. I'm going to give you a quick example, which I would love to see um, in, in the uh, Wilmington Learning Collaborative proposal. We fought really hard. So Mr. Matthews, when he first got on the school board, fought really hard to have a student representative. And we, we championed that cause for years and years and years. We were repeatedly told by the other five members of the school board that you can't have a student on the school board. It's absolutely illegal. We did the work. We did the research. We brought this stuff to the, to the table. And we have students on our school board now. Absolutely phenomenal. So we were doing some work. I'm on the Code of Conduct Committee for Red Clay. And we were looking at it. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, when was this stuff you know, written? The, 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 the penalties and the infractions, right? And all of this stuff that students get in trouble for, they're just such minor things. Like, why are we spending all this time on this? So we advocated strongly that students should now be able to be on these um, committees. So we have, so then I looked at the dress code. And our, the red clay dress code is absolutely, it's very antiquated. It's very problematic. There's a lot of um, gender and race and class bias, um, sexuality bias just embedded right into it. And I did all the research and we talked about it. But then for our first meeting, we had our two student, two student reps come, run from, one from CAB and one from AI High School. And the stuff they talked about was phenomenal. Like, I just wanted all the adults, including myself, to be quiet and just listen to the students, the things they had to say about, you know, all of these elements of the dress code and why they were problematic. And they talked about, you know, heterosexism and talked about race and talked about transphobia and class and culture. And it was just such an organic, wonderful conversation. And so they made something real that hadn't been real to the school board because that wasn't even something that really affected us. They, you had these you know, dress code ideas and policies, but now that their voice is there, they're saying, no, we don't like this. This is really problematic. And we don't mind a dress code, but we don't want to be, we want to know why this dress code exists and we think these things need to be removed from it. Yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff, it seems like uh, maybe people think dress code uh, doesn't seem that important but when you put it in to those terms like there's a there's a progress of like of 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 culture and a progress of like how you're going to interact in a social 
setting, even for kids, even you know when you have to have some sort of decorum. And if you don't revisit those, you come, you get into this. What's what's that's what's realism, as you said. Like what if if you don't ever think that maybe what was like an what was an understood rule forty years ago mm-hmm. is still like if you don't ever look at that again, you actually can't you can't get your mind to think that way all the time mm-hmm. when you're dealing with whatever you're dealing right. with. Right. So yeah, I mean it's. That's my big effort is just to try to get people to, like, imagine something. Yes. And I think there's so many people right now that are imagining something different. And we're trying to figure out how to get that into place, right? And we're, we're people are imagining. They are. They're thinking about things. They're talking about things. They're doing things differently. And I, I, and I think that's exciting. And I, 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 I thrills do me. I do, too. <laughs> Folks, uh, <clears throat> Thank you for joining us. Oh well, I want, I had to. I wanted to say something. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, no! About something else that I didn't get to. Oh, is that oh, good. okay? Of course. It's back so, to the Wilmington Learning Collaborative. Yes, please. Okay. Oh, so this is stuff that p- perhaps isn't in, but the stuff yes. that you're looking. Yes. Stuff. St- ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So th- this is perfect. So this is our like imagine what we could do. Okay. Yeah, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. This is like thinking. Bigger, Get, yes. Getting your head in the game. Okay. Go. So one of the things that I actually said to um, Governor Carney, which is funny because I was in a meeting with Governor Carney, oh my God, I don't know, three or four years ago, and I asked him the same question because he was talking about education and all this stuff. And I said, in everything you're talking about, there was an important element that you didn't talk about at all, and it was institutionalized racism, Governor. And could you talk a little bit about that? And so that was three or four years ago when we were doing work on WEAC. And then when I saw the initial PowerPoint for this, there was no mention of institutionalized racism or systemic racism. So when we met in November, I said the same thing. I said, Governor, I'm sure you don't remember, but three years ago I asked you about something missing from your, you know, your report and your analysis, and I'm going to ask you the same thing tonight. Um, where is there a conversation on institutionalized racism? And along with that, where is the conversation on high poverty schools and how institutionalized racism and poverty intersect to create inequity um, in our schools? And reduced success rates for our students. So that's something I'm working with the governor's office to try and get included in the. Um, yeah. So how I, I want to talk. This is good because now we're going to get controversial. No. Oh, and I love it. <laughs> so what 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 uh, proposal or policy or language would be in in an actionable? You know, so whether it's an administrative order or or a law or something that would address that, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to trick you because I'm going to tell you what I think. Okay. Um, obviously, there's uh, racism, systemic racism, and it, it, it intersects with, um, you know, where poverty is, and also intersects with where crime is. Surprisingly, no shit. Um, my biggest goal when we get down to brass tacks and we have to put something on paper of how we're going to address this is exactly what you said. Is if we can make the the resourcing and funding uh, make sure it, it goes uh, where it's needed most, uh, whether it's infrastructure stuff, whether it's staffing, what all the stuff we talked about already. That's that's what. I I don't I'm interested to see how what what you think the word what you think the approach would be to address this because I'm more heavy on the 
push resources, redistribution of resources, in other words, than, like, trying to finagle with uh, racial lines or how that would work. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested in, like, some details on that. So, um, so when this, when this, when the Neighborhood Schools Act passed, or when it was being contemplated and talking, talked about, one of the things that, um, the Brandywine School District said, and their superintendent and people on the board was that we know from the research that any time a school becomes more, reaches a, a poverty threshold of a, a minimum of 40%, that the schools become very challenged in a, in a number of ways, right? So it's a challenging in, environment for students, and you see student outcomes and success rates begin to plummet. You see that there's a lot of stresses, additional stresses on the educators and administrators. So they actually asked for an exemption um, and they said, we don't want to um, get rid of, say, busing. We don't want to get rid of, we don't want to have fully um, local community schools. And the reason is because then we'd have some schools that are like at an 80% poverty rate. And we just know that that's, that that's not a successful model for, for, you know, a great student outcome. And they were actually granted an exemption by the state. So they made, they made a case, they showed the research, and they were exempted. Um, other districts didn't ask for that re- exemption. And what you find now is that in red clay, we have some schools that are 80, 90 percent high poverty. Right. And we have other schools that are, you know, 90 percent, 95 percent high income. So I think that's part of the conversation that we need to have. And there are lots of quotes. So in um, the WIAC final report on pages 47 through 49, there's a huge section on institutionalized racism and the impact that has on students. Um, in the remarks from Chairperson Ray Jones Avery in the Wilmington Neighborhood Committee's report, Children Matter Most, she says that the Wilmington Neighborhood Schools Committee has recently gone on record reflecting a majority view that the Neighborhood Schools Act is potentially unconstitutional and could illegally create racially identifiable high poverty schools, right? So people are talking about this, and I don't know what the what the automatic answer is, and I, I don't think there is, you know, a simplistic or easy answer, but I do know that when we say we're going to allow for schools to be so exceptionally high poverty that we enter a terrain in which education becomes, you know, very, very difficult, and there are a lot of issues that come along with it. So I think it was funny because at the end of the governor came to our meeting a few weeks ago and one of our school board members said, well, maybe we should be talking about more about, you know, um, segregation in our schools and desegregation because she said one of the things we know from the research is that schools are more highly segregated today than they were in the past. And I think part of that is tied into we have choice, which is a very great idea, except we don't have transportation with choice. And this is something I've talked about a long time. So we can we can ask, we can um, submit a choice application for a child to go to a different school, not a school in their feeder pattern, but because we don't provide transportation, there really isn't a choice because you can only get a child to that school if you have the means to do so. And if you don't have the means to do so, you don't have a choice. So I think those are some of the other extraneous, well, and I wouldn't even say they're extraneous. I would say they're deeply embedded in this conversation that this report needs to think about and, and look at 
because we try things, right? And that's the, that's the beauty of humanity. We try things and some things work and some things don't. But I think when some things don't work and we see decades long experiences of that, then we have to step in and say what you said earlier. Hey, let's imagine something different. Yeah, there are different ways of doing things. Certainly, like, you know, I, my, I guess what I'm saying is exactly what you said. Really, the key here is the, uh, the, that poverty cutoff. The key here is not letting schools get too far down that line, too. And where I think that the the systemic racism aspect comes into it is that that's going to audit, that's going to uh, to the quote that you read, going to then stigmatize the lowest of the low area in a certain racial way, too. And so we can't have any of that. But again, what do we what do we want to do to address that is imagination and redistribution of resources, because I. Again, I, the, 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 the fact that in this day and age we accept such large discrepancies between or among um, elementary schools, say, and where this elementary school is even in the same district, but of course across districts, is so much better for whatever reason, um, you know, however you want to, you know, it's just, it's just self-selected nonsense. They should, like... I don't understand, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a municipal good. The public is, is, is building these schools and staffing these schools. Then why aren't they all good? Like you, when you have to, I mean, this is kind of an older thing because people barely go to the post office anymore. But like my, I, I like um, when I travel sending postcards back to people. And so wherever I am, I have to find a post office because I want to take the thing to the post office. And Wherever I am in the country, even out of the country, but in the, but in the United States, you go, you buy the stamps, you give them the thing, they immediately get and they go, get to where they have to go in three days. No matter which post office you go in, you can go into post office in a very poor neighborhood. You can go into post office in a rich neighborhood. You can go to post office with one clerk. Go to post office with four clerks. Go to a post office that's a hub. Go to a post office that's in a trailer in you know some place in in, in the in the backwoods. It we're, all works the same. And so the idea that we accept um, this uh, divergence of, 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 of resources and quality, I think, is a, is, a, is a tragedy, really. Because that's what I would focus on, exactly what, you're, what you said. So what's, have we, is there, what else, what else um, sh- should, we, should we be focusing on? Is there anything else here that, uh, that we've missed? <clears throat> I think we should just be focusing on community engagement. We should yeah. be focused on our students. I think we should find ways to get provide our students with more of a voice. I think that school boards across the state, across the country, I mean, the majority, I'm 52, right? The majority of the people on school boards are older. Some of us have kids, some of us don't. But I think we should um, have students become allow them to become more involved because young people want to have these opportunities and they want to get involved and they want to get engaged. I mean, all of our schools, they have kids doing, students doing phenomenal things. So let's, let's open those doors for them. Let's give them those opportunities as adults, you know, and I'm, I consider myself of that older generation. Let's just step back a little bit and let the next generation do their thing because they are in their moment where they're being creative and imaginative. And there's so much excitement. Oh, my gosh. They have so much to say. And they're doing so much, right? So it's not just saying, but they're doing and they're doing and they're doing. And we need to provide them with support. Yeah. I mean, uh, even even at that level, wrestling any kind of small amount of power from anybody, even if it's just students giving input, 
you know, it's it's uh, as you said, it's 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 looked at as a uh, as a divergent uh, idea. But yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is exactly what you said. We have to look at it like organizing together, whether it's getting students together to talk about a particular issue or getting a student on the school board to just be like, hey, by the way, it doesn't work like this. Like, okay, because I'm I'm 47, I guess, or whatever. Same, you know, we're almost the same age. It's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how it works. Like, maybe we should have a student actually tell us how it's working because we don't know. So, yeah, I mean, but that and but but that I think that's something we can extrapolate out over all the kinds of like advocacy work that we're doing is like we have to organize and get together and sort of understand everybody and do it as a team because the individual thing is is not that's going to fail. I mean, it's actually built to fail. That's and it's the, fun to work with others and it's fun to organize with other they people. Are. If they're <laughs> us, if they're us, let's be honest. Adriana, come on. I mean, let's be honest. We are fun. The people, <laughs> most of the people we know are fun. But we've worked with people out there in the organizing community that are, you know, they're boring. But rest assured, if, if there's anybody associated with sort of our project, and people understand what I'm saying. The audience understands what that means, our project. We are cool. We're fun. Come find out. Sign up. I mean, sign up. Sign up for a working families party. Find out. We're the coolest. Well, I mean, we are. <laughs> well, my children tell me I'm not very cool. So I just want to share that. You're not really fun, Mom. You're not really cool. You're a little bit boring. You like to go to bed at 9 o'clock. <laughs> oh, that's, that's 8.30. 8.30. 9 o'clock seems like midnight. Craziness. What are we, partying? What's a Saturday night? Oh, man. Well, I'm just I'm uh, I'm extremely excited that there is this kind of energy in lots of different places, both in the political realm and the organizing realm, uh, and about a lot of different issues about education uh, and about housing and about all of this different kind of stuff, and and that's all that's all you can do like that. It's the process is the thing, so um, you know you can point to an end state and how you'd like it to look, but that's kind of irrelevant. Um, I know people hate to hear that and it's like, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be called like, you know, a slow, steady pragmatist, but I understand that there's a process and, um, I'm just trying to kickstart it a little bit. So we don't have to go back to, uh, HB 300 in March of 2001. What the fuck? Can you imagine we're still arguing about shit that, that, that was put out HB 300 in March 2001 and we still haven't done anything. Here, and here we are. And here we are talking about it. But we're working towards making change, and there's lots of people working hard, and we're going to get there. We can't give up hope, right? That's, <laughs> why, gonna, that's why we're here. We're not. I, I, look, because we believe in the future. Everybody yes. knows, the audience also knows, that I'm, I'm Bloom and Doom. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm Bloom and Despondency. Now, if there's going to be any kind of cynicism, uh, negativity, pessimism, I'm I'm the guy. <laughs> so then we bring we bring other people in to like cheer me up. A lot of these are like a lot of these do turn into like people that are like you gotta have hope, man. It's yeah. Gonna be okay. and I'm like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna die. Uh, no, I I mean especially, and I wish he was here to, to talk about it. Um, we we didn't mention that um, that uh, K F Stomberg, a super producer extraordinaire, is uh, is on on assignment today. He hasn't he's not joining us here in the studio. 
but I've mentioned it on like the last three or four episodes. The stuff that Working Families Party is doing is amazing. The stuff that Network Delaware is doing, uh, expand expansion wise in their issue campaigns is amazing. Um, I mean, you see what the ACLU they, they they're bringing in heavy hitters. You know, we have heavy hitters now at the Delaware ACLU, so you know people are fucking around and finding out about that. Um, yeah, I mean, a great comrade of ours who kicked this whole thing off, this sort of like leftist movement uh, and organizing and community organizing, Eugene Young. Now, well, you know, he's got he's got a little he's got his hand in the housing, a little bit, you know. So the, the thing, you know, if you if you look at it from a certain perspective, you do have hope because there is a, it's a process, and uh, you got to trust the process. Um, well, we have to trust ourselves. Correct. To get the process right. Exactly. It's up to us yes. to do it. And I think the community is feeling a little bit powerful. And I think the community is starting to say, okay, let's trust ourselves, right? Because we, we can get it right. We can figure this out. And I think that's like, wow, that's mind-blowing. That's just fabulous. Yeah, right? I'll just leave it at this. This is a perfect way to end it because uh, our great friend and comrade and, and um, uh, bunker historian... Uh, Harvey J.K., professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and uh, biographer of, of Thomas Paine, reminded me today that uh, Thomas Paine's 285th birthday is Saturday. So um, I can give a quote from him because he's the only good founding father. And my favorite Paine quote is, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And what that that gets to the crux of exactly what you're saying. We can do it with imagination and organization and people. We can do it. It's just a matter of doing it. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you I'm so for happy. having me. You're you're hard to nail down sometimes. I mean, you're I'm very sorry. busy. I'm you're sorry. very busy. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're, uh, and you know, <laughs> and I, public speaking scares me a little bit, so I'm see, always I a little just, hesitant. That, this was great. Oh my gosh! How did you feel? Well, about you that? made it wonderful, so thank oh, you. And sakes. the ambient lighting really helps. Well, look, I did say this. We, the, the, this is the, this is yeah? meant to like. Get, make people feel like they're just hanging out. Yeah, you know, no, you got it's a nice. Thing. I like it. Yeah. So it's just my little, my little area. That's funny, you know. It's like a sound studio, but Nurse Susan, uh, my wife, calls it the podcasting room. <laughs> She's like, "What are you in the podcasting room?" I'm like, "It's a studio." She's like, "I'm never calling it that." I love it. It's so funny. But uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm uh, super glad that you took the time today, and and maybe we'll be uh, we'll be talking to each other very soon on on different matters who knows who knows (laughs) folks uh thanks so much and um here in the highlands as it is everywhere left is best